Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, March the 10th, 2023. It is currently 4.46 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And if you've been paying close attention, you probably know something's not right here in the Theology Central studios. You, you probably know something's not right, because if you go back, see Sunday, I believe that was March the 5th, since March the 5th, today's March the 10th, let's count how many episodes have broadcasted, how many episodes have aired, how many live broadcasts have occurred from this studio since Sunday. Let's count. Are you ready? Well, first we had Gen Z and, and Jesus. Gen Z and Jesus. That's one. Sex Won't Save You 2. John chapter 5, part 1, 3. A Miracle or Superstition 4. Charles Stanley Confusion 5. 2 Peter 1, 11, 6. Fox News and the Church 7. So we've had a total of seven live broadcasts since Sunday. Oh, come on. If you know anything about this podcast, you know something is terribly wrong. Something something has not gone right this week. And what has gone so horribly wrong this week? I mean, there's a lot of things that have gone. Let, I don't have the ways to count all the things that have gone wrong this week. But starting, I guess it was probably Friday, maybe Saturday, I started having some medical issues and they got worse and they got worse and they got worse. I don't even know how I made it through Sunday morning. We were not able to have Sunday evening services because of how bad the situation was. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And I've tried everything. I've done everything I've been told. I, and and I, I'm still in a lot of pain. And it's made it for a horrible week, meaning I haven't been able to turn on the microphone and really do that many live broadcasts. And then here's what happens. Okay, once I'm go well, obviously pain, nobody likes to go through pain. But once I can't go, once I'm having pain and then I can't live broadcast, I start getting very frustrated. And I start getting very, almost an anxiety of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have this podcast. I'm not doing enough episodes. What am I doing? I've got to do something. I've got to, and then I do an episode and then I'm like, okay, well, that episode was trash. That episode was garbage. So then I get very upset. Well, I get upset at the number of episodes I'm doing, but I don't feel like I can do enough to make up for the low quality ones that I did. So it just, just everything spirals out of control and I get frustrated and I get discouraged and then I get depressed and then I get mad. And then, yeah, it's just a bad place to be. And so, and on, and on, on top of all of that, right, on top of all of that, I'm in pain. On top of that, I'm not doing the broadcast that I feel like I need to do. Well, I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah, we're in the middle of a Bible study exercise looking at individual chapters in the Gospel of John. And this week, it's supposed to be John chapter 5. And how many episodes have I done in regards to John chapter 5? I've done a total of, drum roll please, one. Yeah, so I'm not doing a very good job there. So then I'm, I look back and go, well, wait a minute. 
if you knew you were in pain and you knew you were going to only be able to do a limited number of podcasts, why did you only do one on John chapter five? That should have been your priority, but I didn't make it the priority because I tried to convince myself that no matter how much pain I could sit here in front of this microphone and talk for hour after hour, after hour, after hour, after hour. So I refused to go along. I was like, I'm going to go like normal. And well, then guess what? Now I'm sitting here going, it's Friday. And what have we done with John chapter five. What have we done with John? Oh, yeah, we haven't done anything with John chapter five. Uh, oh, I mean, we've done a little bit. We, we haven't any done anything of great significance. And then if you go back to that episode on John chapter five, what word was it? I don't even remember the word I messed up. I messed up some, was it finiteness or something? I can't even remember. But uh, yeah, I, I messed up something, I believe, in that. I don't remember what the the issue was I, I, because I, I know I was listening, re-listening to the episode at some point this week and very unhappy with it. So so then I'm like, okay, so I, I, I get an episode done. It's not a, yeah, it's just this never-ending cycle of frustration, frustration, frustration. And then you add all the other things going on. And it's just like, I, I think I think I even made, I think I made a comment this week that I was, that I was really contemplating opening up the window, tossing the microphone, (laughs) tossing the computer and being like, that's it. I'm done. But it's, it's really just, if I could get over the, the physical thing, isn't it amazing how your physical so impacts your mental and your emotional. It, isn't it amazing how that can work? It, it's amazing. And, and, and uh, yeah, and it's just, and then, yeah, it, it's, it's just a, I, I don't know. There's just no way to, there's no way to describe it. So, uh, okay. Uh, that first of all, there's, yeah, someone said there was no mess ups. I, I look, if you need me, I can pull up the audio and show you exactly where the mess ups occurred. I know where every, I know where every mess up I've ever made in every episode I have ever done. I have a perfect memory of every mistake that I've ever made, probably in every area of my life. I have a, I have a perfect memory of every mistake and I never forget my mistakes under any circumstances uh, because, well, because why should I, right? I'm the one who made them. Okay. So, but John five is what we need to do. John five. And it's just so, and it's so like, it's so It's so frustrating, at least for me. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't feel this. Maybe you don't feel this. Maybe it's just me. Um, okay, someone said that won't be necessary. Okay, good. All right. That, that's good. Because see, they, the person said it won't be necessary because they know there was mistakes. They know. They know the very mistakes I'm probably thinking of. See? So once you call their bluff, then they're like, no, never mind. You don't need to do that. Okay. But I could. I can do an entire episode. My my greatest mistakes will start with number 800 and do a countdown. At 799, I came in with this doozy in 2014. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Coming in at 700, we can't forget what happened in 2016. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Now at 400, we can't forget what happened in 2019. Right? And I could just play clips of all of my... Wouldn't that be a great... Yeah, that would probably not be a lot of fun, would not be a lot of fun. But what I was going to say, what I was going to say, it is so frustrating to me that in theory, theoretically speaking, the way it's supposed to work, the way we're kind of like, if you take the Bible and look at the way it's supposed to work, 
the way it's supposed to work is this, that my mind and my focus is always on the things of God. I set my affections on things above, not below. Love, not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know, set, uh, seek first the kingdom of God. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Desire the sincere milk of God's word that you may grow thereby. Uh, God's word should be desired more than gold and silver, more than the honey and the honeycomb. That, you know, meditate on God's word day and night. I mean, it's just everything is about we're supposed to be putting our focus on the spiritual, 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 on the spiritual. That is to be first in our life. That's to dominate our thinking. That's to dominate our desires. That's to dominate our focus. And I don't know about you, Every doing the Bible study exercises has one of the th- reasons I like doing them because it's a challenge and because obviously studying the Bible is something that we're supposed to do as Christians. So I like doing it, but in another way, I like doing it. And I know this is going to sound counterintuitive. I kind of like doing it because it's a constant reminder of how jacked up I am. Because no matter, I'm like, okay, this week, it's going to be, we're going to focus on this. And then somewhere in the week, I realize, am I really focusing in on that? Am I really studying in that? Am I really paying attention to that? Because over here, I'm focused on this and I'm preoccupied with this and I'm bothered by this and I'm, and it's like, what, what happened? Where, where, where did everything go? And it's so now here it is Friday afternoon and I'm beyond frustrated because what have I done? I mean, I, I've done basically nothing this week with John five. I've done basically nothing with the podcast. Well, I mean, I mean, oh, so angry at myself, but it's just amazing how it only takes, it doesn't take a lot. And next thing you know, we can, we can sit in church on a Sunday and be like, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And everybody's like, amen. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Amen. And then by the time we get home Sunday afternoon, we've already forgotten the sermon. We've already forgotten God. We've forgotten heaven, hell, angels, demons. We've forgotten everything. And we're frustrated and irritated and fighting and mad and this and that and this and that. And everything else dominates our life. And then typically by the time we get to Monday, that we got this to do and got this to do and I got this responsibility and I got this to do and I got this to do and then it's Tuesday and and it's like some point you're like, man, what happened to my week? So I've got to try to do something here to get us and I, but but I'm sharing the reason I'm sharing all of this is because this is the reality like I could turn on the microphone and go hey guys how has your week been god is good and he's good all the time have you been studying your bible oh let me tell you the word of god has been enriching enriching uh, my life enriching my life this entire week it's been amazing it's been um, and I could just I could I could talk the big game I could put on the front, I could play the, but why do that? Because I think the reality is we all go through times like this. And so this is where I am on this Friday afternoon. Like I want to be able to tell you John 5 has been enriching. What is even the word? I have been enriched by John chapter five greatly this week. Is that a better way of saying it? I don't even know. I don't see there's, there's my mistake for today. Okay. It doesn't take long for me to make one. So, uh, so I, I, I just want to share it because I think we could all relate to it. I think it's much better. I think it's much better to approach the scriptures with just an open honesty of where you are. And right now where I am, 
John 5 is not taking the greatest priority. Now, I can at least say this. I can at least say this. As I've been, even though I haven't been digging into it the way I should, I have been thinking about it as much as I possibly can. And so I'm, what I'm going to do today is just try to show you something that I think is interesting. I have not fleshed this out. I haven't thought this through, but I at least want to discuss it. All right, so let's do this. John chapter 5, let's start in verse 1. Let's go back and, and, and just do a little work on this. John chapter 5, verse 1. Now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these, and in these, or in these, there's no and, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse four, for an angel went down at a certain season in the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 30 and eight years, 30 and eight years. He had an infirmity 30 and eight years, 38 years. So here's all these people who gather at this pool and and according to at least the King James, right? And we're going to at least mention this right now. Verse four seems to indicate, according to the King James, that an angel would come down, stir up the water, right? And, he, and it would be, as it says, a certain season. I don't know if it did, if the angel supposedly showed up multiple times during a season, I don't know, but showed up during a certain season, would stir up the water. Whoever got in first, dun, 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 healed everyone else. Better luck next year. Better luck next season. Better luck next time. But so-and-so got healed. All right. But this man has been sitting there for 38 years. Now, the issue, I've brought up some questions about verse 4 in the study so far. Do we believe an actual angel actually descended, troubled the waters, and people were actually healed? Or was this a superstition? Was this some kind of superstition that was bringing people to these waters, to this pool, year after year after year after year? And this man's been coming or been there for 38 years, waiting for his opportunity. Do you believe it was real or do you believe it was a superstition? Was it real or a superstition? I've, I think about most of the emails have gone with, they believe it to be real. I have a hard time understand. I, like, so if it's an angel, it has to be from God. So God would send an angel to stir up the water so that one person could be like, it would be a, it would be, God would be creating a situation to literally encourage selfishness. He would literally be creating a situation going every, you know, every man for themselves. This would not create a situation that would promote selflessness. It would promote selfishness. It just seems like a weird, like, and if he's like, say, Hey, I'm going to send the angel there. Now just let one person be healed. That like, it just seems so odd to me, at least to me. I believe it's a, it's a superstition, but most of the emailers were like, no, I believe it was real. And I'm like, okay, that is, I, I, I respect that. I just have a hard time with it. But someone today pointed out, well, wait a minute. Not everyone believes verse four even belongs there. 
So do we at, at least acknowledge this? So I found an article. I haven't gone through every detail of the article, but I at least wanted to mention it, all right? Uh, this was published in 2010, and the name of the article is, Where Did Verse 4 Go? Where did verse 4 go? My wife, Robin, came home from a, Chris, a Christian speakers conference yesterday and told me about a discussion they had. Now, a couple of things. First of all, this is not my story. I'm reading someone else's story. And their wife went to a, a Christian speakers conference. Don't let me get, I won't go on my normal rant on the conference industrial complex, but we'll skip that. But they go to a conference and told me about a discussion they had. John 5 was the passage under discussion. And when they arrived at verse 4, to their surprise, it wasn't there. I guess it caused quite a stir. Someone found it in the New American Standard, but nowhere else. I guess no one had the KJV. This happens in several occasions in the Bible. There are even verse, verse references missing in the KJV. What is going on? Well, either someone left the verse out or somewhere along the line, someone added a verse in, but whoever assigned the verse references, he had verse four. Now let's stop right here. Okay, now. Okay, good. All right, someone just says, hey, that explains why I'm looking at the NIV and something significant seems to be missing. Now, my first thought is this. So many times... And this this bothers me, like you don't even know how much this bothers me. Someone will go to a conference, someone will be listening to a Christian podcast, and then they'll 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 be bringing up this big issue, like wait, this verse is missing, or wait, this there what 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 are textual variants, or wait wait what is the hypostatic union, or or like wait wait uh, you know what what is what is this and what is this, and then, and and sometimes I'm looking at them like where do you go to church for crying out loud. Don't you hear about these issues in your own church? But so many times people go to church and for some weird reason, some of these significant issues are never addressed in the pulpit. And this is one of the things that drives me crazy about preaching. For example, if you've been listening, uh, I've been listening to a series, uh, a, a church go through the Gospel of John for 2023, and they're going to go uh, into the Gospel of John and into 2024. It's like a year and a half study. And I've been utterly blown away and baffled and perplexed and confused at how little they're really dealing with the text. They're not even really dealing with the text because there's serious textual questions and issues. And they're just like, boom, just move on. Just boom, just move on. And if your church doesn't deal with all of the issues, all of the complexities, all of the difficulties, all of the problems, textual variants, interpretive issues, debates in church history, if they just skip all of that stuff, just so that they can give you a nice little sermon with three points and get you out by noon, then there's no point in even going. You're wasting your time. I know I shouldn't say that, but it just seems like if the church is not going to deal with these issues, it's so frustrating that people learn about these issues outside of their congregate, outside of their local church. It's like you're giving all of your money to support the local church, but you're getting all of your actual teaching and learning and digging in through, through something else. Well, then why support... The church support the thing that's giving you all the, in, the, the study and the, like, it's just so frustrating. Like, I don't understand. If the church is not there doing it, what's the point of the church? 
Yesterday, we did a podcast episode where we talked about churches bring in like 140 something billion dollars a year. Well, if churches are getting 140 billion dollars a year, but people are actually getting their learning and their study and they're, 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 they're really digging in through all these other things other than the local church, then why is the local church getting $145 billion? For what? To produce what? I, I, with all, with, I'm going to try to be as nice as I can. Useless sermons that don't really provide any actual in-depth study? So these people are at a conference and all of a sudden everybody's like, wait, what happened to verse four? Well, wait, I mean, you've never heard about textual variants and issues in your church? Like, I don't understand. It's like, it's like when I went to the Bart Ehrman, um, Dr. Wallace debate at Dallas Theological Seminary. There's all these Christians there who are like, they act like they never heard this stuff. And it's like, what what happens? In, what is literally going on in your church Sunday to Sunday? I don't understand. Okay, but all right, here we go. They said, this is a pretty, this, this article says, this is a pretty big issue and a simple blog can't do it justice. It can also degenerate into a pretty ugly discussion. Many of the people involved in the discussion don't know much Greek, um, if any. And in the worst case scenario, the discussion is reduced to a matter of salvation. If you don't believe what I believe about the text of the Bible, you aren't a Christian. Now, let's see if we can steer clear of this type of ungodliness. Well, that, that's very true. It's what can happen. You bring up any questions about a text or you're like, well, wait a minute. What about this? This doesn't seem to make sense. Or wait a minute. I don't know if this even belongs here. Oh, you're questioning the Bible. You're not even saved. You're a heretic. It's like, never mind. Never mind. Let me go find some atheists to talk to so I can have a rational conversation. Because sometimes talking to Christians, it just turns into lunacy. It just turns into, it just becomes ludicrous. Well, let's see what they have to say here. Let's see what they have to say here. This is the basic question of the Greek text, and the technical technical name for it is text, we'll call it, they call it text criticism, uh, textual criticism is what I would refer to it as. I'm going to stick with the Greek Testament, not the Hebrew. Here is the basic re, uh, reconstruction, all right? The writer wrote their gospels and epistles and sent them to their churches. That's basically how it works, right? So the writer, whoever the original writer was, they wrote down their texts, they wrote down their gospels, they wrote down their epistles, and those were basically sent to, their, to, the, to different churches. These documents were copied so that they could be shared in the process, so they can be shared. In the process of copying, changes were introduced. By the way, this is not an academic conjecture. We have these different manuscripts and can see the differences for themselves. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's just a fact. The originals were written. Those originals were copied. As copies were made, things were added. Things were left out. Things occurred in the copying. And we know this because you have, here's manuscript of this epistle or this gospel. Here's this manuscript. Wait a minute. They don't quite read the same. Now, sometimes the differences or the additions or the subtractions, what, sometimes they're insignificant. They don't mean much. Change in spelling, changing in word order. It, it's nothing. It's not, it's, not, it's not controversial. It's not conspiratorial. It's kind of like shrug your shoulders. Big deal. We can figure that out. But then there are times you're like, wait, 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 what, what just happened here? How, wait, where did this come? 
What's going on? And it leads to confusion. That's where those who study textual criticism comes along and go, okay. And they have a process trying to determine which reading is the, the most likely the closest to the original. And they go through all these steps and they'll be like, okay, we think this is the best rendering of the verse. Now, when Christians hear this, they lose their minds and they're like, no, 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 because they want to believe that, that people were just walking along on like a Tuesday. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, look, look at the birds. Oh, look at the beautiful clouds. Oh, I think it may boom. And all of a sudden this thing falls from the heavens, right? All of a sudden the heavens open up and all of a sudden this thing drops. Boom. And it hits the ground. And I'm like, what is that? That scared me. Oh, it's, it's a Bible. It says right on the cover and it's bound in leather and it has a table of contents. Well, and that's how we got our Bible. It didn't work that way, ladies and gentlemen. It did not work that way. Now, I do believe the original, original manuscripts, the originals, they were inspired by God, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe that. But that inspired document was then copied and then copied and then copied and then copied and copied. And ladies and gentlemen, guess where the originals are? We don't know. They're gone. We don't have the original. We have the copy of a 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 copy. And every Christian should know this. Every pastor should explain this to their people from the pulpit. Because when they're preaching in the text, there's times they're going to be like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we got an issue here. This is what we call a textual variant. And then explain it to people. We should do that. Some changes were accidental, but others appeared to be intentional but not always for nefarious reasons. It is often to add an explanation or substitute an easier word to understand or to harmonize the Gospels, etc. In John 5, 4, most believe that a scribe, the person doing the copying, thought it was puzzling why the man who would lie there, why a man would lie there for 38 years. Perhaps he knew a tradition that said the angel periodically came down to stir up the waters and the first person in was healed. So he added in the verse. Others would argue that for some reason, the verse was dropped off. As times progressed, and as we can tell from archaeology, biblical manuscripts were collected in five different geographical areas. Since the center of the church was in Rome, this area has the greatest number of, oh, wait, you can guess it, copies, because that's where's the center. Someone just said, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> Someone said that could have been a Bart Ehrman impression, a copy of a copy of a copy of, yeah, well, that uh, probably is a Bart Ehrman uh, impression, even though I'm not trying to do it on purpose. Because, well, I've listened to a lot of, of his discussions and talks and usually hear Christians make a mess of things when they try to argue some of these issues. But OK, but, but but once again, my emphasis, my point is this should be discussed in your church. Everyone in your church should know this. Everyone in your Sunday school classroom should know this. Everyone should know this. That's where they're not running out there making ridiculous claims on social media. All right. So as times pass, as we know from archaeology, biblical manuscripts were collected in five different geographical areas. Since the center of the church was in Rome, the area had the greatest numbers of copies. Erasmus, 1500s, created a Greek text based on two manuscripts from the 12th century, Matthew through Jude, and another 12th century manuscript for all but the last six verses of Revelation. 
He went from the Latin back into the Greek to get those last six. His work became the basis of the King James translation. Now, I'm not, we're going to get, I, I know, I'm just going to lead into World War III with King James only people. And every, we'll go with this as a basic idea presented and how this is all put together. But we have Erasmus. 150 years ago, we started digging up new manuscripts that were, in fact, much older by centuries than the ones of Erasmus, who was in the 1500s using manuscripts from the 12th century. Get it? Okay. They came from a different geographical area, and when the majority of the text uh, area than the majority of the text we currently had, and they were different in places. For example, many of them did not have John chapter 5, verse dun, 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 4. And so the science of textual criticism was born, which is the science of determining which of the different readings is most likely original. The general preference is to see scribes as adding verses, not removing them. For that reason and others, most feel John 5, 4 was added after the fact, and there is no good reason why it should have been, uh, 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 there is no good reason why it would have been omitted. But God in his sovereign sovereign love made sure that the differences among the manuscript would not hinder our faith. Now, according to some, about 5% of the Greek text is in question. No major doctrine is brought into question by the Bible. You can trust your Bible. That's the typical way everyone says, well, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And, And you could argue it's not that big a deal. Just make sure you understand, though, you have to acknowledge those differences exist. Those differences exist. We have to at least acknowledge that. If we, if we don't acknowledge that, then, then we're, we're doing a disservice to everyone, right? We're doing a disservice. And this is where Christians get themselves in trouble because they're like, oh, we're going to debate Bart Ehrman and we're going to argue that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God without error, without a problem. And then Bart Ehrman's like, okay, how many textual variants are there? Oh yeah, there's more textual variants than there are scriptures in the Bible. All right. So, so you want to talk about how perfect it is, and I can say, well, wait a minute, which rendering is, is it? Is it this or is it this? And 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 it, and then and then you're like, well, 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 it's it's perfect. Well, no, that doesn't sound like it's perfect. It sounds like it's a mess. So then we end up losing the debate. Where we could say, this is what we know. We do believe the Bible, the original manuscripts were inspired by God. We believe that by faith. We believe all of the manuscript evidence gives us assurance that what we read is trustworthy and close to the original, right? So we believe that what we have is a trustworthy copy of the originally inspired manuscripts, right? We believe that and we believe it's trustworthy, but we do have to acknowledge that there are all kinds of variants and there are some questions on some serious questions on certain passages of scripture, but no major doctrine seems to be impacted by it. Now there, now Bart Ehrman would argue, well, wait a minute. There's some passages that would really call into question the actions of Jesus. So that may call into question a major doctrine because it may call into question his deity. But, um, but for the most part, everything is pretty much intact. But we have to at least acknowledge those difficulties. So when it comes to John 5, 4, look, I don't believe an angel actually came. I think it was pure superstition, pure superstition. I just, it makes no sense to me. 
Hey, because if an angel was coming down and healing people and people were being healed on a regular and consistent basis, to me, that minimizes Jesus' miracle. Oh, Jesus healed someone. Big deal. It happens every season right there in the pool of Bethesda. So, whoo, Jesus healed someone. Congratulations. So does the water in the pool of Bethesda when you get in at the right time. Like, I, I, to me, it would minimize the miracle of Jesus. But if people have been coming there year after year after year after year with this hope, holding on to this, tra- this superstition, this tradition, and the man has been there for 38 years, that, that makes the story completely different. But some would argue that the whole angel thing doesn't even belong there doesn't even belong there in any way, shape, or form. And some translations, now I still think the majority of translations have the angel there, if I'm being fair, but if I go here, and most commentaries address it as if the angel actually was there. But if we go to the translations, King James obviously has the angel. The new new King James obviously has the angel there. The New American Standard has the angel. The New American Standard 1977 has the angel. Uh, The Legacy has the angel. The Amplified has the angel. Uh, The, um, I don't think the New American Standard, the current one has it there. I don't think the American Standard version has it there. I don't think the E, I don't know if the E, the English Revised Version, I don't think has it there. Um, See if I have, uh, see what else I'm missing. I don't think the NIV has it there. I think someone uh, in the chat said that uh, it was missing from the NIV. I don't think it's in the NIV. So some translations don't have it. Others translations do. So you just need to be aware of that. To me, whether the verse belongs there Right. Let's just say you can argue the verse belongs there. Even if the verse belongs there, I don't think it's indicating an actual angel went down and did that. It just, to me, it destroys the whole, the whole narrative. It destroys the whole narrative. At least that's, that's what I'm sticking with. I'm sticking with that. All right. Now, what I'm going to do here, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I'm not missing any comments. And then I want to show you what I've been thinking about this week even though my thinking may not be the clear, the, the, (laughs) yeah. In spite of my week, I've been thinking about this. Here we go. Here's what I want you to see. If you remember, last week, we were in John chapter four. And we had the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And she came to Jacob's well. She was coming to the well to get water, to get water. And Jesus told her, hey, anyone who drinks of this water is going to thirst again. She was coming to get, she was looking in a sense to the physical material world to satisfy her thirst. And that would only satisfy physical thirst, but even that physical thirst would only be satisfied temporarily. And she would need something again. She would need it more and more because the physical material world will never truly satisfy. It will only last for a little bit. And then boom, some kind of dissatisfaction is going to occur. And it's a, it's a maddening world to live in because it never truly, 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 truly satisfied. And Jesus, Jesus says, hey, 
You're going to thirst again. But if, but if the, you'll give, take the water that I will give you, you will never thirst again. Now, we think that thirst Jesus is referring to has to be the thirst for salvation in some way, because obviously, even as a Christian, you still thirst and get dissatisfied and get frustrated with so much in life, even though we are told in Philippians, we should learn to be content with whatever state that we are in right? We should learn to be content. Sometimes it's hard to be content in life, but we're, we're supposed to learn that, that, that we could add that to it. But the point is, in John 4, here's the woman coming to the well. She's getting physical water, and she's like, hey, you're, you're going to keep thirsting, and you're going to keep thirsting, because this physical world, this material world, none of this will ever truly, 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 truly satisfy. But if you'll take the water I will give you, You'll never thirst again. Now, that has to be re- referenced to salvation in some way, shape, or form, but there's still much there we could discuss. So I was thinking about that in, re- in, in correlation and connecting it to John 5. Because in John 5, you had a great multitude of people, a great multitude of people. And look at them. They're impotent. They're blind. They're halt. They're withered. You have a great multitude of people laying around, sitting around, looking for a solution, looking for something to make them better, looking for something to cure them, looking for something to heal them. They were doing so. And I believe, I believe in the woman at the Wells case, if you think about what, you know, she's really looking to, she, she, she started, we mentioned a lot of this on Sunday, all of the different things in a sense that she was looking to and holding on to, Right. Her, her identity as a Samaritan. This is Jacob's well. It has to be significant. Wait, where? which mountain do we worship on? There was all these things she was grabbing onto. There was all these things she was grabbing onto and she would mention. Here, you have a great multitude of people all laying around a pool of water looking for, once again, a solution, something to make them better, something to fix them, something to heal them. And clearly at least for the one man, 38 years, and he hasn't found what he's been looking for. He hasn't found anything. He hasn't found it. And then what happens? Well, just like the woman at the well, Jesus sees him lying there, verse 6, knew that, knew that he had been there a long time. And he said unto him, "Will thou be made whole. And the impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath day. Now, in two situations, we can forget all the crowd, but we'll have a woman. She's trying to drink from a well that she's still going to thirst again. Another man's hanging out at a pool of water. And guess what? He he still hasn't... nothing is working for him. He's still, in a sense, thirsting and desiring and longing for healing. And in Jesus, in both cases, Jesus is the solution to those problems. I want you to see that there's, to me, a parallel there. One's coming to a well. She's going to keep coming to that well. She's going to keep thirsting. Jesus says, you drink of this, you're going to thirst again. And you got another man's like, hey, I've been here for 38 years, but I can't seem to get into the water. I don't get into the water at the right time. And so no no, no one's helping me out. I've been laying here suffering for 38 years. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. Rise up, walk. And then the man did. 
the other the other case, Jesus is like, drink of this water. And it appears she, in a sense, drinks of the water, spiritually speaking, because we know what she did. She leaves her water pot almost as like she's no longer focused on the physical water. She's focused on now the spiritual water. This man rises up and walk. He walks away from the physical water of the pool of Bethesda. He walks away from that tradition. He walks away from that superstition. He walks away from that because now, he, in a sense, he has, he, he has salvation. He has Jesus. If you think of the woman of Samaria, the Samaritan, the woman of Samaria, she was focused on her, almost her racial identity, on Jacob's well, on which mountain to worship. She was focusing on all of these things. And finally, she focuses on Christ. The man at the pool, his focus would have been getting in that pool, getting in that pool of Bethesda, getting in, getting in, and he hasn't, and he hasn't. So his hope has been on this tradition, on this superstition. There's all these things we cling to to find the answer, to find hope, to find something, but it doesn't do what we think it's going to do. It always leaves us thirsty over and over and over. It leaves us still, in a sense, as this man had been, um, this man had been lying there uh, because, well, he could I mean, he, he couldn't get up. Um, he had an infirmity for 38 years. Obviously, this infirmity kept him from being able to get up and walk or get up and walk in a, in a, in a quick pace. He, he's been basically laying there. He's looked to this superstition. He's looked to this tradition. So I really wanted us to take John 4 and 5 and really just think about all the things we look to, all the things we cling to, to find something, something we're trying to grab onto. And it leaves us with what? Thirsting again? Leaves us laying there, unable to do anything? All of these things, none of them will work for us spiritually. They're all broke. It's like, it's basically as useless as covering yourself with fig leaves. It's just, it's just as, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, remember Ecclesiastes is the journal of Solomon trying to find out why he's lived. What's the purpose of life and everything he tries. Meaningless, 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 vain, 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 vain. It, he can drink all that he wants. He can laugh all that he wants. He can have everything you think you would want in life. And he comes up meaningless, meaningless, everything under the sun. Remember, that's the key phrase in Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is vanity, meaningless, useless, empty. It's above the sun. It's to the, in fact, Solomon finally ends with, we have to look to the creator. We have to look to the creator. And John 4, we have a woman basically, in a sense, she's, she's, the, the, the water she's getting from the well serves as the illustration. Drink of this and you're going to thirst again. And all the things she mentions seems to focus. She's preoccupied, in a sense, focused maybe on her identity as being a Samaritan. She's focused on, hey, this is Jacob's well. Are you greater than Jacob? Right? She... Hey, wait, which mountain are we supposed to worship in? She's preoccupied with that. All of these things. And she's like, just, here's the living water. 
Here's the living water. This man is like, I got to get to that pool. I got to get to the pool of Bethesda. If I could just get in, if I could just get in. When the real issue is our, our, where we are spiritually. Now, I, my struggle with this is, now we know what the man does. He gets up, he walks away, right? And immediately the man was made holy, took up his bed and he walked away. Right? Now, the Jews, of course, when the Jews see this, they're not so excited that the man got up and walked. They're more bothered that he walked on the Sabbath because, you know, that's what, you know, yeah, we could get into a whole discussion uh, about that. And so they, um, yeah, then, then a discussion about that occurs. Um, and, uh, and the Jews try to kill him in, in verse 18. Uh, yeah, and it's pretty crazy. It pretty, it's pretty crazy. Jesus, Jesus heals someone, and the next thing you know, the religious people are trying to kill him. He's like, I healed someone. How dare you heal someone? We're going to kill you. And it's like, wow, that, that didn't quite go the way as planned. Okay, but, but that, that's what happened. So we have the woman, and we have this man. Or we call it the woman of, of, uh, at the well and the man at the pool. The woman at the well, the man at the pool. Both are there. Both are longing for something. Both are needing something. The woman just, and probably primarily, she just wants her physical thirst quenched. But Jesus tells her, hey, that's never, you can drink that all day and you're going to continue to thirst again, demonstrating something more, right? That, that hey, there's nothing in this life. And, and just think about, again, all the things that she was looking to, you could, her identity, you can look at all the relationships. She had had five husbands. You could go through all the things that she had been through and nothing. And then here the man, obviously he wants to be healed. Now, my struggle with this, my struggle is this, if I can find it. Here's my struggle. First, I'll state it. Then I'll read this verse. Um, is if I want to just preach it, right? If I just want to preach it, I could preach it like, ladies and gentlemen, nothing in this life will satisfy. Nothing in this life will make you happy. What you need is Jesus because once you get Jesus, you got everything you want, everything you need. You'll be perfectly happy. You'll be perfectly content and your life will be great. That's how you want to preach it. And everybody be like, amen, amen, amen. I got Jesus. But we all know that there's all these things we constantly want and need and want and need. So how do we understand this? How satisfying should Jesus be for all of our... Now, again, I believe primarily this deals with salvation. I believe so many of our desires and our dissatisfaction in life is because, well, it, it's, 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 it's really a scream. It's a symptom it's a symptom of our spiritual need. But the only problem is once our spiritual need is met, those desires still remain. Because if just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you stop desiring this and this and this and this. Because on one hand, I want to say our desires are a symptom. And if we can get if we can get Jesus, then the symptom, these symptoms will go away. The only problem is. I don't, I struggle with saying that because I know that there are all kinds of Christians who have been saved, but they struggle with desires and wants and needs and they're not happy and they're not content and they're never satisfied and nothing will ever make them happy. And you're like, okay, well, see, that doesn't work. What's the problem? I know this primarily that what we long for 
deep down in some way, it's kind of the uh, Augustine's idea that basically there's a hole in our heart and it will never be satisfied until we're saved, until we, until we have a, re- until we restored back to our creator, then, then we're always, this, we're always going to have this longing. The only problem is once we come back into right relationship with our creator, I think the longing remains. So is the, what's, what's the cause of the longing? I think the cause of the longing is the sinful nature, which is never satisfied, never happy. I think the sinful nature will never be, I don't think, I don't, the sinful nature will never be satisfied and never be happy. Never. But our desire for salvation can be taken care of. But our sinful nature is a constant struggle. So what do we have to do? Well, this comes to what Paul said. Now that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state that I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, now, Paul is saying he's learned that. Obviously, therefore, it wasn't a natural thing. How do we learn that level of contentment? How, how, how can we be that content? How? How can I look at my life and look at, a, look at situations and go, man, okay, I feel this and this and this and this, and I'm discouraged and depressed and frustrated and I'm at the end of my rope and, and I can't live this way any longer. How can I then replace that with, I've learned to be content. If I never have that, I'll be content. If I never have, I'll be content. If I never, I'll be content. 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 Can the spiritual, in a sense, having Jesus drinking the water, the living water, salvation, in a sense, meeting Jesus at the pool, and he says, rise up and walk, in a sense, again, a picture of of salvation per se, I think that's a better way to understand it. I mean, mean, it's a physical healing actually occurred, but again, these physical healings typically pictured to a spiritual healing, but... um, that once we are spiritually healed, per se, once we are spiritually made whole, because maybe that's the issue. Maybe, now I'm just thinking out loud, we are made whole positionally. We're not made whole practically because the sinful nature remains. And the sinful nature will never be content. Now, Paul says he's learned to be content. So maybe we can learn contentment. Do you think Paul was always content? I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I would have a hard time thinking that. Maybe what we have to do is try to see life through the lens of our spiritual position. And that because of my spiritual position, I should learn to be content with all of the dissatisfaction in life because of all that I have positionally. I'm perfect, I'm whole, I'm complete, I'm saved, I'm forgiven. Knowing that one day my positional state will lead me to an eternal state where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears, no more longing, and there'll be complete 
in pure satisfaction in, in my glorification. The woman at the well, the man at the pool. There, I think there's, to me, a similarity here. All these people sitting around a pool, waiting. The man's been there 38 years. You think you would have given up. You were like, this is, this is trash, everyone. I got to find a better option. Now, I believe Jesus obviously is the living water. He will give you the living water. He will give you eternal life. He is the one who can say, rise up and walk. He's the one who can completely redeem us, save us, forgive us from our sins. He's the one who can, in a sense, restore us to the right relationship with our creator. He's the one who can heal us perfectly, spiritually speaking, positionally. I just don't know how then that that's supposed to lead to never thirsting again, never, never needing to go back to the pool of Bethesda again because I've been healed. But I know in life, man, life, that longing, that desire. It just never goes away. Learn to be content. Well, I can I be can I learn to be content if I will remember and focus on my position? Can my Awareness of my spiritual position make me content with the lack that I experience in the physical and in, my, in the practical. I don't know. I'll stop right there. Some thoughts on John chapter 5. Remember, Bible study exercise is not supposed to be designed to be three points, not supposed to be designed to be all perfect. It's supposed to be designed as I'm leading you into an exercise into the text. I'm trying to get you to think about it. I'm trying to get you to struggle with it. I'm not trying to make it all perfect. I'm trying not trying to make it all pretty. A lot of people get very frustrated with the way I do these, but I do this on purpose because now hopefully you're thinking, man, there's a lot to think about in about John chapter five. How should I think about all of this? Well, you can give me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. There we go. And I say, I feel like I need to do a million other things, but time is up. It's Friday evening. I, I had my chance and it's, the week is gone. The week has just went right through my fingers, gone. I didn't do enough teaching. I didn't do enough preaching. Didn't have church Sunday night. Didn't have church Wednesday night because all of my issues. And so I somehow let my issues get in there. And, and, and I've been discontent this week. I have not been content at all. I, I I obviously believe I have drank the living water, but I've still been thirsting this week for so much. Not content, not happy, not satisfied. Because I'm looking at a number of podcasts I did, or I'm looking at this, or I'm looking at that. I'm looking at not happy with myself. Not you know, Whatever the case, I could go all day, all the things. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Love to get your thoughts and opinions on all of this. Everyone have a great 
rest of the Friday evening. If there's any way possible, I can do more live broadcasts this evening. I'm going to do as many as I humanly possibly can. I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to try my best. Don't know if I'm going to accomplish anything, but I'm going to try my best. I'm going to do as many as I can tomorrow, Sunday. I'm going to obviously Sunday school, Sunday morning, or Sunday school, Sunday morning. I don't know if I'll get any done at the afternoon, and I don't know. I don't know about Sunday evening. I don't know if I'm going to do a Sunday evening service or not. I don't. I don't know how all that's going to work out. But um, there you go. I'll do what I can. I do what I can. I do what I can. And then there'll be a yeah. They'll, we'll just see what I can accomplish. We'll see what I can accomplish. All right. Thanks for listening. Please meditate on John five, and let me know what you think. God bless.